0: Welcome back, everyone, and welcome to those of you who just arrived. Um, I'd like to introduce the moderator for our second panel, and then she will introduce the rest of her panel. Um, Deborah <coughs> Hammond joined the University of Virginia School of Law in 2012 from the University of Maryland, where she had been a professor for several years. Um, she is a legal philosopher. She is the author of the book, When is Discrimination Wrong?,
1: um, and also a book on the uh of philosophical underpinnings of
2: anti-discrimination law. Um, Many of you know her as a professor of contracts and
0: constitutional law, or have taken her seminars on uh, money and rights, um, or equal protection. Um, And uh, she's the perfect moderator for our second panel. So I'll turn it over to Professor Debbie Hellman.
2: Well, thank you, Carrie, for inviting me to participate in this fabulous event and with this terrific panel. So I'll proceed to introduce them. I'm going to introduce all three of them right now at the beginning, and then they're going to go in the order in which they're seated. So right next to me is Professor Melissa Murray. She's the Alexander F. and May T. Morrison Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley School of Law. In addition, she's the faculty director of the Center on Reproductive Rights and Justice. Her research focuses on the roles that criminal law and family law play in articulating the legal parameters of intimate life. In particular, she writes about marriage and its alternatives, the legal regulation of sex and sexuality, the marriage equality debate, and reproductive rights and justice. Both she and her works have been recognized with numerous prizes and honors, which you can see described in the brochure. In coming here to Virginia, she's coming home in some ways as she's a graduate of the University of Virginia. From there she went on to Yale Law School, but we're so pleased to welcome her uh, back. And I'll just add one further thing. She's also was the con law professor for my nephew who reports she's <laughs> fabulous and she rocks. Um, professor Angela, Anwachi uh, Willig is sitting uh, next to Melissa and she's the Chancellor Professor of Law also at the University of California at Berkeley. So they obviously have a great Con law faculty. Um, And before joining the faculty at Berkeley, she taught both at the University of Iowa and at UC Davis. Professor Anwachi Willig's work focuses on law and inequality in various contexts including employment law and family law. She's the author of the book Uh, According to Our Hearts, Rhinelander v. Rhinelander, and The Law of the Multiracial Family, as well as numerous articles. She's a graduate of Grinnell College, received her JD from the University of Michigan, and she also holds a PhD in Sociology and African American Studies from Yale. Finally. Um, last but not least, is my colleague, Professor Kim Ford Mazrui. He's the Mortimer M. Kaplan Professor of Law and the Earl K. Shaw Professor of Employment Law here at the University of Virginia. He's also the director for the Center of the Study of Race and the Law. Professor Ford Mazrui's work focuses on equal protection, especially as it relates to race and sexual orientation. His publications have considered what role race should play in placing children for adoption, whether and how to select racially and other demographically diverse juries, whether affirmative action policies that employ race-neutral means are constitutional, and whether America is morally obliged to remedy past discrimination, and also whether racial profiling and other discriminatory practices by law enforcement are adequately deterred by our current constitutional law doctrines and he has a BA and JD both from the University of Michigan. So we're pleased to have that very distinguished panel and I'll turn it over to Melissa. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much for having me. It's a great thrill to be here with this distinguished group and Um, As Professor Hellman mentioned, it's a great thrill to be back in Charlottesville as I am a Wahoo, so wahoo wah y'all, I'm really glad to be here. Um, And many thanks to Carrie and Angela for dreaming this up and to the Journal for having the fortitude to take this on. So in the 50 years since it was decided, Loving versus Virginia has come to stand for a number of important constitutional principles. It has entrenched the fundamental right to marry and, in doing so, undergirded the logic of 2016's Obergefell versus Hodges. It has also been understood as a critical civil rights intervention, invalidating racial classifications and other practices that perpetuate racial subordination. But perhaps most importantly, Loving has come to represent what one scholar has called the unequivocal condemnation of legal barriers to interracial marriage. The emphasis on Loving's removal of legal barriers to interracial coupling is purposeful. As a number of scholars have noted, although there has been a steady uptick in interracial marriages since Loving was decided, rates of interracial marriage and relationships remain quite low in the United States, just 17% of the population, according to one report. And some have argued that if random matching were deployed instead, the number of interracial couples would actually be as high as 45%. On this telling, the relative dearth of interracial marriages is not attributed to formal legal barriers which Loving eradicated, but rather to informal cultural and social norms that continue to stigmatize and discredit interracial unions. But is it the case that the continued stigmatization of interracial relationships is wholly attributable to exogenous forces that exist separate and apart from law? Is it the case, as the conventional wisdom suggests, that loving eradicated the most egregious legal barriers to interracial pairings? As I contend in this talk and the paper that follows, this conventional wisdom around loving belies hard truths about loving and its limits. If we shift our focus from interracial marriage to a different arena, like child custody decisions, for example, a more complicated picture emerges. Meaningfully, there are no reported child custody cases involving interracial marriages in the South prior to 1967. That is perhaps unsurprising, because Leving, before Loving, interracial unions were criminalized throughout the South. But what is surprising is that in the jurisdictions where interracial unions were lawful, jurisdictions in the Northeast and the Midwest, we find cases where white mothers routinely lose custody of their children upon remarriage to a man of a different race. Take, for example, Portnoy versus Strasser, a New York case from the 1950s. There, Anne Portnoy Strasser divorced her white husband and was awarded custody of their daughter, Robin. A few years later, she remarried a black man over the objections of her mother, Molly. After trying and failing to dissuade her daughter from the interracial union, Molly Portnoy sought custody of Robin on the grounds that Strasser was, in her view, unable to properly and maintain the child. She was a communist who lacked any regard for the child's religious upbringing, and perhaps most damning, because she was married to a second husband who was of a race and religion different from that of the child. A trial court granted her petition, agreeing that Strasser had indeed neglected the child's care and training because of the other activities in which she had participated, including her new marriage, and an intermediate appellate court affirmed. On appeal to the New York Court of Appeals, Strasser's lawyer, as well as several prominent amici, sought to prove that Portnoy's claims that Strasser was a neglectful and disinterested mother were merely pretextual, that the petition was nothing more than Portnoy's effort to punish Strasser for her marital transgression, and to compel her to leave the husband she loves. The fact that a lower court had credited Portnoy's racially inflected concerns, the amici contended, evinced subtle and serious social prejudice. In the end, the New York Court of Appeals agreed, concluding that the trial court lacked meaningful evidence that would override a fit parent's right to custody of her child. Reiterating that only the gravest reasons could justify transferring custody from a fit parent to another the court ordered Robin returned to her mother's care. Now, Portnoy versus Strasser is not anomalous. Courts in ostensibly progressive jurisdictions where interracial unions were lawful routinely stripped white mothers of custody in these circumstances, though they were often loath to rely explicitly or exclusively on the fact of an interracial marriage in making those decisions. Instead, they relied on a constellation of other concerns. A mother's immaturity, for example, the social and economic conditions of her new interracial living situation, the fact that the interracial marriage had alienated other members of the family, depriving the child of contact with grandparents and other relatives, all to support the decision to divest a mother of her custodial rights. Now, the question for us is whether Loving versus Virginia has an impact on these decisions, as the conventional wisdom might suggest. Throughout the country, and especially in jurisdictions where Loving decriminalized interracial unions, concerns with child welfare and other race-neutral grounds were frequently deployed to divest white mothers of custody when they remarried outside of the race. And in this regard, the cases that preceded Loving actually provided a blueprint for post-Loving courts of how they might continue to signal disapprobation of interracial unions on nominally race-neutral grounds. Etheridge versus Etheridge, a 1978 case from Alabama's instructive. There, a father successfully sought a modification of custody upon learning that his ex-wife had remarried and was pregnant by a black dentist. The trial court agreed with the father and modified the custodial order accordingly. On appeal, an Alabama intermediate appellate court upheld the lower court's judgment. Although the mother insisted that the trial court's decision was based solely on the fact of her interracial marriage, The intermediate appellate court, quote, examined the record closely, but found no overt evidence that the charge is true. Still, there was enough there for the appellate court to muse whether the trial court would have been so persuaded if the mother were married to a Caucasian dentist with an income of 56,000 a year. But speculating affirmatively on such a provocative question, the appellate court surmised, would be contrary to our duty of review and dishonor the trial judge without sufficient proof. Thus, mindful of its duty as an appellate tribunal, as well as the norms of professional courtesy, the court affirmed the award of custody to the father. Now because these cases often involve marriages and sexual relationships, the mother's sexual conduct, broadly construed, frequently became the explicit basis for a lower court's decision to transfer custody. In Schexnader v. Schexnader, a 1978 case from Louisiana, a trial court vested custody in Sheila Schexnader despite evidence of her interracial, adulterous relationship during her marriage. Now, this is unusual. Um, The trial court vests custody in her, but nevertheless notes that her relationship was particularly scandalous and offensive to the sensibilities of the local community in that her lover was of another race. Nevertheless, Loving at least seemed to put her conduct out of reach, as the court acknowledged. Our laws against miscegenation have been ruled unconstitutional, it wrote, and insofar as the law is concerned, the question of race is irrelevant. Thus, noting this fact and that Sheila had ended her interracial relationship, the court, recognizing the very strong maternal preference rule that compels an award of custody to young children, of young children to the mother, awarded custody to Sheila, subject to her continued good conduct. On appeal, however, the Supreme Court of Louisiana reversed the trials court's judgment, concluding that where the mother has consistently engaged in a course of open and public adultery in defiance of generally accepted moral principles and in disregard of the embarrassment and injuries which might be sustained by the children, then the court is justified in depriving her of the care of the children and in awarding custody to the father. There's much that can be said about these two decisions. As an initial matter, the Louisiana Supreme Court's decision to reverse the trial court judge and divest Sheila Nader of custody is highly unorthodox. Generally, in custodial decisions, appellate courts take the word and the decisions of the trial court at face value unless there's a showing of clear error. More interestingly, though, The appellate court was unwilling to actually name race in its decision, but nonetheless traded in stock tropes that historically attended societal discomfort with interracial relationships. (laughs) Not only was Sheila Schexnader open and notorious, and I don't think the allusion to adverse possession is um, unconscious here. Not only was she open and notorious in her relationship In conducting it, she cared nothing for the fact that she was setting a poor example for her children, who were receiving the misguided impression that such relationships were normal and acceptable rather than deeply transgressive and regrettable. But it's the trial court's opinion, the one that vests her with custody, that is perhaps most revealing in seeing the law's continued role in cultivating disapprobation of interracial romance, even 10 years after loving. Although the court ultimately awarded Sheila custody and cited Loving, its decision is not a full-throated endorsement of interracial relationships or Loving's logic. Indeed, the trial court placed great weight on Sheila's apparent willingness to relinquish her lover and the relationship. And not only does the court credit her willingness to give up her relationship, its custodial award is contingent on her continued good conduct staying away from her lover and others like him. That a court could continue to keep tabs on a litigant after making an award of custody is unsurprising. A critical feature of divorce and child custody proceedings is that the court retains jurisdiction over the decision and thus is free to modify custodial arrangements in the future to address changed circumstances and vindicate the child's best interest. In Schexnader, however, the court's continuing jurisdiction takes on a more controlling and regulatory posture. In specifically noting Sheila's abandonment of her interracial relationship and making custody contingent on her continued good behavior, the court essentially imposes a ban on future involvement with her lover and interracial romance more generally. Now, such a ban is obviously different from the miscegenation bans held unconstitutional and loving, but this more informal civil ban is surely as likely to be as effective as any criminal ban. Living in a small community where her actions were likely to be closely observed, it is unlikely that Sheila Schexnader felt free to resume her interracial relationship or even to engage in a new interracial relationship at some point in the future. And indeed, the fear of losing custody of her children would surely be a deterrent to others seeking love across the color line. Now, to be clear, not all of these cases, and tragically, but in a number of cases, the trial court's decision was reversed on the ground that consideration of an interracial relationship without Moore was insufficient to constitute a change in custody warranting um, such a a shift. And critically, in 1984, the United States Supreme Court constitutionalized the stance in Palmore versus Sadati. But Palmer versus Sadati is a far narrower decision than many appreciate. It does not preclude the consideration of race and custodial decisions. It only requires that courts not rely unduly on race. That is, lower courts cannot rely exclusively on race and racial concerns as the basis for their decisions, though they are free to take them into account. As Professor Katie Iyer observes, Only the most unsophisticated government actor would be unable to demonstrate compliance with Palmore's narrow limitation. And even in those circumstances where judges appear to rely on race unduly, the capacious best interests of the child standard nonetheless provides significant cover for judicial decision making as it had in years past. So as all of these cases make clear, Loving did not remove all legal punishments and deterrents to interracial unions. In these custodial awards, courts can continue to signal disapprobation of interracial unions. Now, of course, as many will note, in these pre-loving cases, the mother was able to marry the partner of her choice, even if courts looked askance at the decision. And that is certainly the case in the post-loving milieu as well. But that misses the point. Although these relationships were not criminally prescribed, they remained deeply stigmatized and disfavored, and indeed, law was a means of signaling that continued disfavored status. With all of this in mind, the idea that Loving eradicated the most egregious legal barriers and punishments for interracial marriages seems overstated at best. Certainly, Loving invalidated criminal bans on interracial marriages, but it did not eliminate all legal impediments and deterrence, nor did it fully diminish law's presence in signaling public disapprobation of interracial unions. For mothers who lost custody of their children, the decision surely felt like a punishment, a punitive measure intended to call her to account for her unorthodox relationship. So on this telling, the conventional wisdom which acknowledges low rates of interracial coupling but attributes those statistics to social and cultural forces exogenous to law seems too facile. Make no mistake about it, there is a role that law is playing in cultivating the continued disapprobation of interracial unions. Decisions like these which express concern for the children raised in interracial relationships or that otherwise question the mother's judgment both reflect and feed the continued skepticism and disapprobation of interracial unions. But I want to contend here that these cases do more than simply illuminate the shortcomings of the conventional wisdom that attends Loving. These cases also make clear the shortcomings of decriminalization as a model for legal reform. And on this telling, it's worth noting that although loving is a stalwart of the constitutional law canon, and the family law canon, it is at bottom a criminal law case, and it's not alone in this respect. Most of the cases that are credited with liberalizing norms around contraception, abortion, non-marital sex, and same-sex sex and sexuality, Griswold versus Connecticut, Eisenstadt versus Baird, Roe versus Wade, and Lawrence versus Texas, these are also criminal law cases with constitutional dimensions. In this regard, loving is part of a larger historical arc in which decriminalization has been a principal vehicle for liberalizing social mores around sex and sexuality, and more recently, recognizing LGBTQ rights. Yet, as we reflect upon this history and the decriminalization impulse that has fueled these profound changes, a surprising commonality emerges. Even as criminal bans on certain sexual conduct are formally eliminated, the disapprobation and stigmatization that accompanied and indeed fueled the criminal bans does not dissipate entirely. Instead, these impulses are simply rechanneled into other non-criminal contexts. So even after interracial unions have been formally decriminalized, we nevertheless see the impulse to punish them emerge in other non-criminal domains, for example, the child custody decisions. Likewise, although Lawrence versus. Texas decriminalized sex outside of marriage and same-sex intimacy, the impulse to censure and punish those relationships does not evaporate. Instead, as I've elsewhere documented, it's simply relocated to other non-criminal contexts, the use of professional codes of conduct, administrative regulations in various workplaces. All of these are another way that disapprobation can be communicated. The regulation of abortion and contraception are also instructive on these points. Although the use of contraception and abortion have been decriminalized since Griswold, Eisenstadt, and Roe, many argue that these decisions to use contraception and abortion remain deeply stigmatized and indeed subject to state regulation that to some has a decidedly punitive cast. On this account, Civil laws that permit employers and providers to opt out of providing contraceptive coverage or that regulate various aspects of the process of obtaining an abortion are informal, non-criminal ways of signaling the continued disapprobation of these choices and indeed limiting access to those choices. Now, thinking about the decriminalization of intimate life in this way illuminates nuances of other conversations and discussions that have been occurring. Over the past six years, criminal law scholars and others have engaged in a rich debate about over-decriminalization and mass incarceration. And recognizing that over-criminalization yields a range of societal problems, many have begun advocating for what they term misdemeanor decriminalization, eliminating jail time for minor offenses such as marijuana possession and driving violations, or downgrading felony offenses to misdemeanor offenses. In assessing these reforms, legal scholars like Professor Alexandra Natapath have emphasized that the shift to misdemeanor decriminalization is not necessarily an unalloyed good. As she explains, decriminalization does not necessarily mean deregulation. Even under a misdemeanor regime, the offense conduct continues to be subject to state regulation, although less robust regulation than it would if it were classified as a felony. But interestingly, In lodging this critique of misdemeanor decriminalization, Natapath juxtaposes misdemeanor decriminalization with what she terms civil rights decriminalization. As she explains, when same-sex rights advocates call for the decriminalization of gay sex, they mean that the state should get out of the business of regulating that intimate conduct altogether. Thus, where misdemeanor decriminalization fails and civil rights decriminalization succeeds is that in the latter, Decriminalization results in legalization of the conduct, and legalization, Natapoff and others appear to suggest, is akin to a full-throated embrace of the conduct, or she puts it, complete deregulation. The history of interracial child custody cases makes clear that in fact, even civil rights decriminalization and legalization poses challenges for those seeking less state regulation in their lives. The mode of regulation morphs and shifts, but only to a different context, In the end, it is regulation all the same. And understanding this aspect of decriminalization helps us to recognize this dynamic even when it presents in less obvious forms. This term, the United States Supreme Court will take up Masterpiece Cake Shop versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission. There, Jack Phillips, a Colorado baker and cake artist, refuses to provide cakes for celebrations commemorating the marriages of same-sex couples. Phillips argues that the First Amendment protections for free exercise and expression exclude him from the ambit of Colorado's non-discrimination statute, which prohibits sexual orientation discrimination in places of public accommodation. I don't know what the Supreme Court will do in this case, but I think that what is really interesting is that amidst all of the discussion of the First Amendment concerns and the LGBTQ rights concerns, no one has thought of Masterpiece Cake Shop as evidence of the regulatory displacement that we have seen time and time again in the wake of decriminalization. Let me explain what I mean by this. Lawrence decriminalizes same-sex sex sex out of marriage and 13 years later, Obergefell versus Hodges legalizes same-sex marriage. Jack Phillips' refusal to provide cakes for same-sex weddings precedes the court's decision in Obergefell, but nevertheless, we might understand it as an expression of the continued disapprobation of same-sex intimacy and certainly the prospect of legalized same-sex marriages. That is, it is evidence that legalization does not mean complete acceptance, nor does it mean the absence of regulation. And of course, Jack Phillips's personal objections to same-sex marriages is not the same as state regulation. But if the Supreme Court does find that certain constitutional rights or statutory rights shelter this kind of personal disapprobation from the ambit of non-discrimination laws, that might be akin to state regulation the state facilitating the signaling of disapproval of censure of certain conduct and those associated with it. Now, this is all to say that because modern civil rights reform has hinged on decriminalization, we must understand and appreciate its limits as a vehicle of law reform. So much of our efforts to broaden the scope of liberty and intimate life have depended on removing the criminal law as a marker of the state's presence in our lives. But while we certainly celebrate the progress that decriminalization symbolize, we ought not get too complacent. Decriminalization and legalization is not synonymous with deregulation. And as the interracial custody cases make clear, regulations come in different forms, some more obvious than others. But regulation is regulation, whether it occurs via the hammer of criminal law or through the more subtle velvet glove of civil regulation. And all of this is worth thinking about today, 50 years after Loving. This is a remarkable decision that did much to advance the project of equality, but it is not a magic bullet, and it reminds us that decriminalization rarely is a magic bullet. There is always more and more work to be done. Thank you.
3: Okay, so before I begin, I first uh, want to thank... uh, uh, Carrie Abrams, really, for really bringing this to life, uh, Carrie and uh, Natalie and Ally really did all the work on this project, and uh, Carrie uh, secured the funding and uh, was really just all around really wonderful about it so thank you very much i 'm um, I'm, I'm also honored to be on this panel with the pe- people that i 've long admired, um, all three of you um, and today i 'm going to talk about. Um, how we got from Loving, which I think is a rather strong opinion, and to Washington versus Davis. And what did I what do I think we lost um, in Washington versus Davis? <laughs> so in 1967, the United States Supreme Court issued an opinion that contained its most searing and explicit condemnation of white supremacy, and that's Loving versus Virginia. And that issue in Loving was a constitutionality of a statutory scheme that prohibited marriages between individuals solely on the basis of race. And among other things, these provisions punished intermarriage between a white person and a colored person, meaning not only blacks, but also Asian Americans and American Indians, at least, uh, who did not fall under the Pocahontas, what's known as a Pocahontas exception. The provisions also punished the evasion of the state's interracial marriage ban by Virginians who chose to legally marry each other in another state and then return to live in Virginia. And so in 1958, Mildred Jeter and Richard Loving do exactly this. They leave the state of Virginia. They get married in Washington, D.C. They return to Caroline County to live as husband and wife um, and they're indicted uh, and convicted uh, of the charges against them. Um, they ultimately bring a class action challenging Virginia's anti-miscegenation statutory scheme. And nearly a decade later, the United States Supreme Court decided the lawsuit in the Lovings' favor. And in so doing, the court rejected the state of Virginia's argument that its scheme did not violate the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution because it equally restricted and punished blacks and whites. The court also proclaimed that the invidious nature of Virginia's anti-miscegenation law was in evident, in part from the fact that the statute prescribed generally accepted conduct if engaged in by members of different races. And finally, the court rebuffed the state of Virginia's argument that it had en- enacted its anti-miscegenation statutes as a means of protecting the purity of the races. The court reasoned, quote, the fact that Virginia prohibits only interracial marriages involving white persons demonstrates that racial classifications must stand on their own justification as measures designed to maintain white supremacy. In other words, the very fact that the statute prohibited only marriages between a white person and a colored person, again, meaning African-Americans, Asian-Americans, and American Indians, and did not preclude marriages between colored people of different races, exposed the real motive behind the statute, a maintenance of white supremacy. This particular decision portended a promising future for the analyses of discriminatory intent in equal protection cases. For in loving, the court was willing to ask questions and engage in the type of analysis that had the potential for exposing the motives behind the state's legislative actions. In particular, the court was willing to ask itself two important questions. One, did Virginia's actions in enacting the statutory scheme make sense in light of its stated purpose for the action? And two, what were the types of actions that the state of Virginia would have taken in creating its statutory scheme if it had actually wanted to protect the racial purity of the races? And of course, this was not a legitimate goal, but what would it have done if it were really, that was really its motive? So we fast forward nine years later to the court's opinion in Washington versus Davis in 1976. And the court had abandoned, by then the court had abandoned its willingness to interrogate and look behind the governmental entity's actions to decipher its intent. In Washington versus Davis, the issue is whether the Washington, D.C. Police Department's procedures for selecting officers discriminated against black applicants on the basis of race. The court's inquiry focused exclusively on the department's use in its selection process of Test 21, which is an examination that is generally used throughout federal service, was developed by the Civil Service Commission, not the police department, and which was designed, they say, to test verbal ability, vocabulary, reading, uh, and reading comprehension, but which had not actually been validated by the department. Right? It had not actually been validated to predict um, good job performance. Both parties to the lawsuit agreed that the use of the test excluded a disproportionately high number of African Americans, four times as many blacks as whites. And still, the department claimed that it needed to administer the test to applicants to confirm that such applicants had acquired a particular level of verbal skill, and in particular, had the ability to communicate orally and in writing, including through police reports, in their job as an officer. The plaintiffs, all blacks who had applied for the police officer position, but who were denied a position because because of their score on test 21, argued that the same rules that applied in Title VII disparate impact cases should be implemented in equal protection cases. And thus they argued proof of discriminatory intent was not necessary for for them to prevail on their equal protection claim. In the end, the court rejected the plaintiff's arguments, declaring that, quote, the invidious quality of a law claimed to be racially discriminatory must ultimately be traced to a racially discriminatory purpose. Furthermore, the court held that there was no proof of discriminatory intent on the part of the department. Just like the trial court, the court reasoned that there could be no discriminatory intent because one, 44% of new police recruits were black, a figure proportionate to the blacks on the total force and equal to the number of 20 to 29-year-olds blacks in the recruiting area. And two, because the police department had affirmatively sought to recruit blacks, many of whom passed the test but failed to report for duty. And additionally, the court upheld the use of the test, noting that the test was a useful indicator of training school performance, not actual performance, and that the test was was not designed to and did not discriminate against otherwise qualified blacks. So Washington versus Davis provided a devastating blow to the promise that Loving offered to the future of civil rights litigation because it's proof of discriminatory intent requirement essentially made it impossible for plaintiffs to win equal protection claims. Like many other race scholars, I find the court's requirement of, for proof of discriminatory intent in equal protection cases troubling. However, I'm not gonna delve into th- that critique of the uh, uh, discriminatory purpose requirement Uh, A lot of ink has already been spilled on these particular arguments. What I want to do is take a deeper look at the mistakes the court made in evaluating and deciphering intentional discrimination. And in particular, I consider how Washington versus Davis and thus later equal protection lawsuits might have fared better if the court had followed the approach that it took in the Loving case to determine whether there was discriminatory intent. And what, first, what might the result in Washington versus Davis have been if the court had asked itself whether the, the government's actions, here the use of test 21, made sense in light of its status purpose for using the tests, which was to ensure that the officers had ne- the uh, necessary verbal skills? And relatedly, what might the result in Washington versus Davis have been if the court had asked itself whether the government was actually engaging in actions that were in line with its express goals? And in making these considerations, I first wanna highlight how the court completely failed to consider how the, the department's continued use of Test 21, a test that had not been validated, could have been analyzed as proof of intent to exclude blacks from the department. And thereafter, I explain why the court's conclusion that the D.C. Police Department could not have intentionally discriminated against blacks because they had engaged in efforts to recruit African-Americans is flawed. And I do so by exploring whether the department's actions were truly in line with the stated goals of increasing the diversity of the workforce. But before I do so, I wanna share a few questions from Test 21. Okay. So Test 21 is a test that had 80 multiple choice questions. Uh, Most were of reading passages and vocabulary questions, right? And so here's the first test, 21. All right, so dates are the fruit of a species of palm tree, which ranges from the Canary Islands to northern Africa and the southeast of Asia to India. These trees have been cultivated, and their fruit much prized throughout most of these regions from the remotest antiquity. In Arabia, date palms are an important source of national wealth, and their fruit forms the staple article. Of food in the country, right? And the question is a quotation that best supports the statement that date palms, right? And the answer, of course, is B. Right, I'll give you a sample of these, right? And these are representative samples of questions. I'll give you another example, right? Promontory means most nearly A marsh, B monument, C headland, D boundary, or E plateau. Right? And of course, the answer is the answer is C. Now, how many people in this room can't imagine a police officer who could write a a police report or speak with a citizen without being able to answer these two
0: questions?
3: (laughs) Ironically, my third and final sample question reads as follows. Adhering to old traditions, old methods, and old policies at the time when new circumstances demand a new course of action, may be praiseworthy from a sentimental point of view. But success is won most frequently by facing the facts and acting in accordance with the logic of the facts. Right, and the quotation best supports the statement that success is obtained through. Right, now before I get to the answer, let's, let me provide some context that would allow us to think about what the court knew and what we knew at, about the underlying, the facts underlying the decision, the questions in Washington versus Davis. Mm-hmm. So first, we know that old traditions, old methods, and old policies of the D.C. Department included using Test 21 in hiring its officers um, for years before the case was filed. We know that in 1968, 80% of the police force was white in a city that was approximately 70% black. We know that after Martin Luther King, Jr. was assassinated in Memphis on April 4th, 1968, Washington, DC, like so many other cities around the country, experienced days of rioting within its boundaries. We know that during these riots, DC's 2,800 member and overwhelmingly white police force was mobilized along with more than 13,000 federal troops to suppress the uprisings. And we know that between April 4th 1968 and April 8, 1968, just four days, more than 1,200 fires burned in the city, resulting in estimated damages of more than $13 million. We also know that after these riots, the department knew it could not continue um, to uh, exist with an 80% white workforce in an overwhelmingly black city. We know that the Department began to correct for its past exclusion and obvious discrimination against African Americans, not in 1965, when the Civil Rights Act of 1964 became effective, but only after the uprisings erupted in 1968. And we can imagine at that point, the Department had no choice but to acknowledge that it had to better communicate and work with residents of DC. And yet we saw the department adhere to old traditions, old methods, and old policies at a time when new circumstances demanded a new course of action. And the department failed to face the facts and act in accordance with the logic of the facts. In other words, although many of you may think the answer to this question, number 64, is A, recognizing necessity and adjusting to it, the real answer as shown by the DC department's actions is really none of the above. So I digress, Um, so let me get back to the first what might have been question, what might the result in Washington versus Davis have been if the court had asked itself whether the government's actions made sense in light of its stated purpose for using the test, which was to ensure that police officers had the verbal skills necessary to perform their jobs. I think that had the court asked this question, it likely would have concluded that there was sufficient proof of intent to discriminate. Um, because the department's actions made absolutely no sense in light of its stated purpose of ensuring effective communication skills for its offers. Uh, and before I get to the court's understanding of intentional discrimination, let me note that the court's opinion in Washington v. Davis includes quite promising language. I'm not actually talking about some of the language in it. Some of the language is, is wonderful, and you could use it to, find, to reach what I think would be the right conclusion. And yet the court doesn't ask none of those questions. Um, Trying to right, so here are some of the questions the court would have asked if we wanted to find out whether the the police department's actions made sense in light of its stated purpose. Right, so first it would have said, well, exactly what kind of communication skills, whether in writing or in speech, were needed by the department's police officers to perform their jobs? To whom were the officers regularly communicating? To whom did they need to communicate with? What language or understandings of the world did the officers need to comprehend to successfully engage in such communications? Yes, the officers had to know how to read and write language well enough to write police reports and understand the basics of law, but these other questions are really critical. In fact, as I was reading Washington versus Davis, all I could think of was the 1970s sitcom, Sanford and Son. Many of you are too young to know about that, but all I could think of was Officer Smitty who was an African-American officer in the show and his relationship with with two of his partners, Officer Hoppe um, and Officer Swanhauser, both white officers. And, recall, and and Smitty often played what you would call a translator for hockey in these roles, right? <laughs> um, so what test was there to examine the ability of white <clears throat> officers to effectively communicate with the largely black citizenry, citizenry in Washington, D.C.? And I'll show you an example. Hi, how, how you
4: feel, Smitty? I'd like to meet my new driving partner. This is Officer Swanhauser. We do the rounds together. Hey, how you doing, Officer Swanhauser? How you feel, Smitty? <laughs> The reason Officer Smith and myself are paying this call is for the purpose of issuing a warning. A warning? A warning. (laughs) It has come to the attention of the department that an as yet unidentified suspect is operating in this area and attempting to sell copper that has previously been burglarized and that said burglary may have been perpetrated by the suspect in question. There's a dude trying to unload some hot copper that he snatched himself. Oh, <laughs> right, I thought he's dead. So until we apprehend the suspect in question, the department advises that you refrain from all purchases of copper from any person or persons canvassing the area. If you are approached, you're going to notify the district police immediately. <laughs> Until this cat gets busted, be cool on copper. And if he hits on you, contact your local fuzz.
0: <laughs> Did you peep the dude just been ripping him off?
3: <laughs> Do we
4: have a make on the suspect? As far as we're able to ascertain, the suspect in question is a male Caucasian with no distinguishing physical characteristics. <laughs> He's a white dude. <laughs> uh, yeah, some of my best friends are white. All
3: right. All right. So you can see, right, if we're talking about a population that's 70% African-American and we're talking about a police force at per, 80% percent um, african um, uh, Caucasian, Um, we have to ask ourselves about what exactly are the communication skills that would be required to do that job effectively, and was the test getting at it? And the test clearly, uh, uh, test wasn't validated to show, predict actual job, good job performance, right? So why didn't the court ask why the department chose not to create a test of focus on the types of communication that officers most frequently engaged in if the department really wanted officers who could engage in all types of communications that were truly needed to perform the job well? More so, Washington versus Davis may have turned out differently in its analysis of intent to just commit had taken the loving court's approach in asking, quote, what actions would the the department have taken if it really wanted to achieve its stated goal being inclusive and having a more accessible hiring process? But rather than engaging in this inquiry, the court essentially assumed both good faith on the behalf of the department, a supervisory group of white decision makers, and meaningful success in actually achieving that diversity. It blindly accepted the department's claim that it was actively engaged in efforts to recruit a more diverse police force, what I like to call the we're trying um, defense. And then it applauded the department for its claimed success. The court asserted again that 44% of the new recruits were black. Now note, however, that Washington versus Davis was first filed on April 10th, 1970, only eight months after the court began to count. The court begins to count in 1969, they say since August 1969. The court never gives us the data between 1965 when Title 07 becomes effective and March 1970, which would have been the most telling. They actually included they actually included six years of data six years after the case was filed, only data six years after the case was filed, and they ignored data in between that time. Well, most of us engage in our base, best behavior when we are being watched. Put another way, most people are, uh, stop speeding when they see a police car in the highway, and employers are no different. There's no reason to think that the D.C. department was no different. The most probative evidence, the evidence that really would have told the court about whether the good faith and good motive that it imputes the employer was accurate would have been the evidence regarding diverse hiring in the four and a half years before the case was found, before the department knew anyone was watching, and therefore the court never even bothers to ask about that data. Additionally, the, the department never presents the raw numbers pre- behind its hiring. After all, 44% could mean five out of 11 officers, or it could be 88 out of 200 officers. A 20, remember, this is 2,800 officers, and the raw numbers matter. And back to my original point, why assume good faith on the part of the department? It did not try to diversify until it actually had to do so. Was it engaged in all, all the activity that a department that truly wanted to diversify would do so? Uh, it didn't validate the test uh, for its reliability, right? There was no proof that the kinds of questions that were asked on the test um, uh, exhibited any kind of positive relationship between the test and actual job performance. Um, I'm trying to skip over. And it also failed to ask questions about uh, the supposedly disproportionate number of African American officers engaged in the act of taking the test, but those who took the test but then failed to report for duty. Really, what could have been the reason why African American police candidates would not show up for duty after taking and passing the test when white officers repeatedly showed up? Was there some reason why African American officers failed to report? Were they discouraged or pushed away from the job? Were they not given information about where to report for work? Or if, for example, transportation obstacles were a reason for this disproportionate no-show problem, why wasn't the supposedly properly motivated department working to address the systemic obstacles? However, none of these questions about what a department that truly desired inclusion would have done were asked. These are the kinds of questions that I think that the Loving Court did. None of these questions were asked by the court in Washington versus Davis. Uh, and I believe that this approach, the approach in Loving would have resulted in a more just decision. in not just Washington versus Davis, but all other equal protection cases to come. All
2: right. Thank you.
3: Uh, good morning.
5: Where are we? Afternoon now. Uh, thank you for being here. Uh, the title of my remarks, are um, should Obergefell have been more like Loving and less like Brown? And these three cases, I should say, are very significant to me from a personal perspective. Brown was a case that confirmed uh, my interest in going to law school, and I wrote a paper about it in college. Loving legalized my parents' marriage. My father's black, my mother's white. They were married in 1962, which under the Purity Act makes me a mongrel breed. Although my wife prefers, or my mother prefers to say, designer breed. Um, uh, anyhow, and uh, and Obergefell legalized the opportunity for my son to get married, and he, as he did last uh, March in Florida, to his beloved husband. So, uh, my question: Should Obergefell have been more like Loving and less like Brown? The short answer is yes, yes, and no. My talk has three parts. Uh, first. Uh, Obergefell was more like Brown than Loving. Uh, second, the two yeses, two ways in which Obergefell should have been more like Loving. And third, the no, uh, a way in which Obergefell should, uh, should not be like uh, Loving. Obergefell was more like Brown uh, than Loving. Brown really spoke to the public, especially the South, with an open hand. Uh, it sought to appeal to the better spirits of uh, segregationists. It was written in plain uh, English, not very formalistic, uh, and seemed to have a, be an effort to actually persuade uh, segregation uh, supporting uh, states that this was actually something they should agree with. And there's three features of the opinion that I think contributed to this appeal. First, there was no blame or judgment. The court in Brown never accused the uh, segregating states, uh, or the parties before it, of racism, of intent to harm children. Uh, it almost described the harm as if it was almost incidental. Um, uh, that they may have had no idea that this was harming children. Uh, secondly, so so no judgment or blame. Second, no. Uh, second, the court described it as kind of a. We have reached a new understanding. So you know, original intent may have supported segregation, uh, but we can't turn the clock back to, uh, to that time period, not even go back to Plessy versus Ferguson. The nature of education has really evolved since what it was like back then. So in a sense, you may have been historically right with law and customs, uh, but we have changed, so uh, we're just letting you know that though you were right once, we, we need to ask you to, to adjust. And then third, the court emphasized the human and societal cost of segregation, both in tangible and expressive ways, uh, especially to the black school children, uh, to their hearts and minds and psychological damage, and also to uh, society in the sense that this would harm their ability to become contributing members of society uh, by the impairment of their ability to get a sound education. Uh, Fast forward 13 years in the civil rights movement, as we've talked about earlier today. And you get loving, uh, which as Professor Anwachi Willig said spoke with with searing terms. Rather than an open hand, the court spoke with a closed fist. Uh, And three features distinguish it from Brown in ways that contributed to (laughs) this bolder uh, uh, approach. Uh, First, the court was judgmental, called out uh, the Commonwealth of Virginia uh, twice for endorsing and maintaining white supremacy. Uh, secondly, rather than saying it's a new understanding, the court instead used language like racial distinctions have, uh, we've long time recognized, are odious to a free society. Uh, also, the right to marry has long been uh, fundamental to, uh, to free men. So, uh, in a sense saying, you know, you've been out of step with how we've been for a long time, and it's time that you got in line. Uh, and third, the court was formalistic. Uh, and in this way, I. I differ a little with Dean Chemerinsky. He described Loving as as not formalistic uh, in the sense that it was anti-subordinationist. It definitely was anti-subordinationist in recognizing white supremacy as as illegitimate. Uh, And it did abandon the equal application formality, but it adopted a new type of formality that any racial classification triggers heightened scrutiny. uh, And and then white supremacy was viewed as illegitimate uh, and inadequate to meet that test. But this, this is a, a different kind of formality and one that's evolved in ways that, uh, that have contributed to uh, the rise of colorblindness. Uh, so it was formalistic, uh, certainly more so than Brown, and it didn't talk about uh, the harm to the parties uh, involved. Uh, it, it didn't talk about, um, uh, as uh, Professor Lenhart mentioned earlier, what Chief Justice Traynor said in Perez versus Sharp uh, the harm of not being able to marry the person uh, who's irreplaceable to you. It didn't talk about, as Dean Timurinsky said yesterday, the quote of, uh, of Richard Loving saying to his lawyer, you know, tell them this is, uh, I love my wife and I think it's unfair, I can't we'll live with them in Virginia. Uh, the parties were, were really uh, abstract characters in the very judgmental, formalistic uh, opinion. Obergefell. I, as, as many others, thought of Obergefell as the modern-day Loving, uh, and indeed the court cites Loving numerous times in the opinion. Uh, the court doesn't cite Brown at all. Uh, but in reading it, it struck me that the case is actually, in, in many ways, in, in tone and approach, more like Brown than Loving. Uh, it speaks to the public, again, more with an open hand. Uh, three features of the opinion contribute to this. It doesn't blame or judge. Indeed, it goes out of the way to express respect for uh, the decency and good faith beliefs of people who have res- uh, religious and moral objections uh, to same-sex marriage. Uh, it, um, it also talked about this as a kind of a new understanding that uh, marriage and our understanding of, of gay rights has evolved to the point that now we we have reached a, a, a new understanding. So again, you may have been right uh, historically, but but we we are changing as a society. Uh, And third, the court did emphasize the human and and social cost. In fact, the the court described the the human side in in positive terms too. The opinion opens with very appealing descriptions of the plaintiffs uh, getting married in an an ambulance airplane in Maryland uh, or a lesbian couple that uh, is fostering a child and wants to adopt them. Uh, someone who had served in the military and died, but they can't be on the death certificate uh, the husband. So, and then the court emphasized the harm to children uh, and to the families and to their dignity by denying same-sex marriage and in ways that also harm society, just as Brown talked about education as being foundational to our democracy. Obergefell talked about the family as being a foundational institution uh, to our society. So uh, Brown is, so it's Obergefell more like uh, Brown than Loving. Um, so should it have been more like, uh, more like Loving? So here are the two ways in which uh, I, I wish it would have been, and if it gets the opportunity to rule on uh, a same-sex marriage-related case, hopefully it, it can do so. Uh, so I'll emphasize two respects. First, it should be judgmental. It should call out the South for, uh, not the South, the those states that banned same-sex marriage uh, for uh, heterosexual supremacy. And by this I mean more than just anti-gay animus. I initially went into this thinking I mean anti-gay animus. The court in Romer, the court in, in Windsor uh, talked about the bare desire to harm a politically unpopular group. Uh, the court in Obergefell kind of retreated from that. I said, no, you should have you know, called them out for their, for their bigotry. But I actually, on further reflection, think that's too narrow. Um, uh, a lot of heterosexual supremacy is not motivated by conscious hatred uh, towards gay and lesbian people. Uh, we see the analogy in the race cases, You know, just focusing on white nationalists and, and KKK misses myriad ways in which white supremacy is perpetuated by, uh, by well-meaning people. Uh, in this way, and, uh, well, in, in a way, Justice Scalia was right in his dissent in uh, Roman. Now, hold on, let me explain. Uh, <laughs> uh, he said, you know, the majority has mistaken a culture comp for a bit of spite, calling Coloradans uh, you know, haters rather than preserving uh, traditional sexual mores. I think he's right that probably a lot of people who voted for the amendment two in that case that repealed all discrimination protections for uh, people of homosexual orientation. I think he was right that many people weren't motivated by hatred, uh, I bet many were, uh, uh, so, and he's right that many were motivated by traditional sexual mores. Where he's wrong is to think that that's legitimate. Traditional sexual mores in this context is a benign term for, uh, for heterosexual uh, supremacy. Uh, So the court should have been more judgmental, called out heterosexual supremacy, uh, and I think that would have contributed to uh, a bolder statement, one that I hope would be not just signaling we've passed it, but going forward we should recognize um, uh, the ways in which uh, there's a hierarchy of of sexual identity in this this society. Uh, Let me also just add that I think focusing just on animus is too easy on society and too hard on plaintiffs. Uh, It's too hard on plaintiffs because that evidence is very hard, as the Washington versus Davis illustrates in the context of race, and often because the evidence just wouldn't exist at all because, again, it's often not motivated by conscious hatred. It's too uh, easy on society because, again, it makes us think, just like with race, oh, it's those hateful bigots holding up signs that says, God hates fags. I'm not like that. So this doesn't speak to me. Actually, it speaks to, to all. Uh, if not most of us, or most if not all of us uh, uh, who contribute to uh, the perpetuation of heterosexual uh, privilege. I think it's potentially good for society because it is saying this doesn't mean you have hate in your heart. Uh, it does mean that your uh, uh, your privilege something perhaps out of habit, but that nonetheless contributes to uh, suppressing other people's ability to express uh, uh, their, uh, their affection and love for others. Uh, secondly, it should have been more formal. It should have formalized the presumption of unconstitutionality with respect to both classifications uh, regarding sexual orientation and with respect to sex. Sex already gets heightened scrutiny, but I think the court should have said that bans on same-sex marriage constitute sex discrimination. I've yet to see a persuasive rebuttal to that point. And then for sexual orientation, and I don't mean a mechanical application of the the frontier factors, you know, immutable, visible; those are perhaps relevant uh, in Disha. But the bigger question, which is, when there's a classification before we know more details, that's how the scrutiny works. What is the likelihood that discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation is motivated by legitimate uh, uh, interests versus uh, illegitimate interests? Uh, and I think increasingly, as we recognize. Uh, the wrongfulness of heterosexual supremacy, it's very likely that a discrimination based on hetero, uh, uh, sexual orientation is based on illegitimate purposes. Ah, thank you. So um, uh, so I think it deserves heightened scrutiny and arguably even more, in, in some ways, more so than race in the following sense. Uh, there are remedial re- reasons to use race because of the intergenerational effects of past discrimination through families uh, that perhaps doesn't uh, apply to sexual orientation with the same force. So perhaps there's even less reason to, uh, for the state to be sexual orientation conscious. Uh, one way it should have been more, uh, uh, so those are the two ways it should have been more like Loving. One way it should have been uh, less like Loving and in some sense more like Brown is the way it was, which is expressing uh, humanized uh, an understanding of the plaintiffs, in fact, I think it did a, a stronger job than, than Brown did Uh, as well, and I think that contributes to the ability to persuade people, court has a limited role in this, it is a political actor, but one of the roles it can play is explain to people uh, why you're not only uh, acting in violation of the Constitution, but why you're also acting immorally. And if you can understand that this actually causes harm to the dignity uh, uh, of of legitimate uh, loving people, then that can help to persuade people uh, to, to and educate the public, which is ultimately necessary to, to eliminate <laughs> supremacy in all the kind of decriminalized ways uh, and other ways that may not be in the form of animus. Some remaining questions I have um, that I don't have you know, good answers for. What about Obergefell's expressed empathy for opponents of same-sex marriage? Um, think we should try to be empathetic and understand the perspective of others. At the same time, I'm reluctant to legitimize uh, heterosexual supremacy. So that's a question I have as I think about how uh, the court uh, should, should have addressed this. And then um, the, the final question I have is how do we assess other supremacies? When is a supremacy illegitimate? We have many supremacies in our society that we, we at least uh, accept. Uh, do they have to, um, is it illegitimate only if it causes consequential harms, or can it be de- illegitimate for deontological reasons? Can it be legitimate for deontological reasons? Uh, and then just two examples I'll, I'll leave us with is what about uh, two person marital supremacy, which we clearly have? How do we assess that? Uh, and what about marital supremacy uh, over non marriage, as we also clearly have, and which the Obergefell decision uh, clearly reinforced? Thank you very much.
2: Uh, Thank you to all of you. I thought all three were provocative and interesting, and I want to turn it over to the audience to ask questions. Just to, I'm not going to ask a question to begin. I have some of those if things get dull, which I doubt they will, but it seems that all three of the presentations uh, touched on two broad issues, and I'll just sort of flag those. One broad issue is how does change happen, And what are the most effective ways for the court to act to both facilitate change and to not hamper it? And the second one is, and maybe this is a subset of the first question, what role does the court's doctrinal apparatus play in either facilitating or or standing in the way of social change? So let me turn it over to all of you with questions. Yeah. So, so I'll start. So, um, okay, so Melissa's presentation I found really provocative and uh, from a sort of big picture perspective
1: really helpful. And so I guess I just wanted to ask your reaction to a couple of things that you're playing a role. One is the private versus the public, and the other is religion. Um, so it seems, and this relates to the idea of how does change happen, it seems one thing that happens um, is when the decriminalization decision is issued, there's, of course, people who will want to mobilize against that and its mobilization has tended to be channeled through um, what we think of as private sphere and private decision-making. And so the ask then to the state through courts or through legislatures is to defer to private decision-making. And so Palmore, you know, can be read as saying, well, we can't give give, uh, recognition to, or, or state support for those private biases Um, But then when when those biases might be articulated in the register of religion, we might take a different movement. So part of what's happening in the battle over contraception and in the LGBT space is the articulation of religious objections to what is now the new reality of the state's decriminalization or affirmative recognition. And those arguments seem to have more purchase. So I I was intrigued to hear you say that religion was also, like, paired with race in some ways in the custody the first custody case you talked about. Uh, And so then it seems like the state feels less of a, like it's legitimizing a private bias as opposed to recognizing religious liberty, although that's a clear strategic uh, uh, tool that's being used. And and so the battle in the religious space is actually about what's public and what's private. And the Masterpiece Cake Shop is sort of this sphere that we thought of as Public sphere in which religion isn't playing a role, part of the battle is what role does religion play in these spheres? And and taking it full circle, the the contraceptive coverage battle and the new interim final rules by the Trump administration show how the arguments for religious liberty that carried the day in Hobby Lobby and to some extent in Zubin now can become arguments for conscience generally of religious liberty and moral objections. And so the administration moral objections to providing contraceptive coverage to employees to have exceptions which i think takes us back to what the state's role is because i don't i can't imagine what the government's interest is in uh, accommodating moral objections to women's use of contraception uh, which seems like it's sort of showing that actually some of the arguments for religious liberty were political um, so I'm just wondering how you're thinking about the role of the private the role of religion in that particular
0: area. Thanks, Doug. Um, I'm just beginning to think about the larger project. I mean, this is the biggest cliche in legal academia. This essay is part of a larger project, uh, <laughs> so I'll just say that. Um, I think there's a larger dimension to this, and you know, the loving case and the the follow-on custody cases are a small part of it. And obviously, I want to sort of explore a wider range of different iterations where you see this kind of regulatory displacement. And I think it is useful to think about um, how the private and the public are constructed. And I mean, you, you've obviously thought about this a lot in your work, and so it's it's really helpful to hear you articulate it in those terms. But one of the things I think I hear you saying is that there is. Um, a dismantling of what we might call private, and then a reconstruction of it as public—sort of the shift from, you know, private biases to First Amendment claims that are publicly oriented, and then kind of a reversion to how they become private once again and moral. So, it may not just be a phenomenon of regulatory displacement of sort of one artery of regulation being closed off, the criminal law, and then things being diverted to new avenues that are perhaps less observable and less objectionable, but also a reconstitution of public sphere and private sphere so that those diversions can happen. Um, And that I think is really interesting given how the the dichotomy of the public and private have really structured not only the regulation of intimate life, but also the recognition of like how equality gets vindicated. So it's it's a great comment and very helpful for my thinking.
2: Yes.
1: That like to share your thoughts or advice on, but I think it's interesting that the demographics of folks who, uh, across the board, would agree that the Loving of Virginia are the principles that it instilled in our society, are, are righteous ones. There's still conflict that exists between some of that demographic and the demographics of individuals who uh, would say the exact same thing about marriage equality in America, particularly amongst the African American religious communities in the United States. And so, despite seemingly an out of some of these dynamics, there is still conflict disagreement within what otherwise to some might seem like an uh, otherwise uh, continuous group of folks. So I wonder if you have any false advice on framing legal arguments such that we might be able to create a more inclusive community amongst folks who have in different ways of experience discrimination within our society such that they aren't in these cases or certain cases being uh, disparate but instead being closely renowned? Um.
3: Yeah, so uh, I, one thing I will first say, and then I'll, 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 one, one thing I'll first say is so, um, yeah, the, the poll on the reaction, right, whether people think that you know, interracial marriage is, is fine, right, as the 95 or 96 or 97 percent of people say yes, right? But I, want, I also want to know that there's a gap between people who say that and people who say that they would be okay with it in their family, right? So there's a large gap, and so what, that's not uh, completely accepted. Um, but I would say that, well, Catherine Smith actually has written a wonderful article called Queer as Black Folks, which really says some of the ways that the argument should be framed. Second, it I explains what I think some of the resistance to um, uh, some of the comparisons have been, right? So sometimes, and I, I very much support the comparisons. Sometimes the comparisons are made in a way that suggests that racism is over that um, uh, uh, this would never happen to black people, or this would, you know, and it suggests that uh, African Americans are not experiencing racism still. And I think that that particular argument tends to push people away, and some people away, um, uh, because, it, um, because it fails to acknowledge the, the reality of many African Americans' lives, right? Um, and so, Catherine makes this argument that one of the things you focus on is, is, is uh, focusing on sort of uh, what do you call subordinate goals. Um, um, maybe I should have her just say something. Um, mm-hmm. the, uh, the subordinate goals. And so, and I'm not, you know, I'm not sure that this is, um, this will work in every circumstance because, of course, as Kim said, a lot of it is, I would say, in the African American community, it's, uh, it's, the numbers are much lower after Obama came out and said he was in support of, of, actually, um, same-sex marriage, and uh, the approval numbers went up quite a bit, but, um, but I would say that, uh, that some of it is asserted to be religious based, and some of it is just, I mean, a lot of it's homophobia, and so I'm not sure what would be expressed, how the argument would be framed in a way that would help. I think one of the things to do would be to sort of recognize, acknowledge the diversity and to see more of the diversity within the LGBTQ community. So the way that the community has gotten framed, I think in litigation and generally in the movement is that it's a white upper class um, uh, male, largely, Um, uh, community and that's the image that most people have in their minds and I think that um, uh, for for people to um, for there to be more of an image that is more inclusive and more diverse and that recognizes that there are lots of African Americans who are LGBTQ who will be affected by laws that discriminate against LGBTQ people would go a long way I remember in particular after um, uh, the after 2008, right? the election in 2008, um, Wanda Sykes said uh, that she wished she had been, she had not come out yet, right? And she said that one of the things she wished she had done is that she wished she had come out and, and she'd been more visible because people were able to think of it as, it's not us, um, it's them. So. Excellent.
5: Um, yeah, it's, it's really hard to, how do you change beliefs that are deeply rooted in in cultures Uh, but um one thing i've tried to do in my writing and i think may be worth doing is 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 showing the similarities that people may not be aware of so uh the arguments against interracial marriage uh uh, were strikingly similar to the arguments against same-sex marriage um i'm sight impaired so i can't tell professor kennedy's still in the room but His uh, book, Interracial Intimacies, really reveals that uh, the attitudes towards interracial uh, relationships were rooted in religion, both in southern and northern states, uh, rooted in tradition, uh, rooted in concern for for children. Uh, It it parallels many of the the, the arguments against same-sex marriage. So to the extent we, in hindsight, uh, recognize those as inadequate then uh, then hopefully that can help to point out to people that that you need more than just citing uh, religion or or tradition or nature without uh, without being able to substantiate it more than that uh i also think this kind of goes to the question i ended my remarks with you know do we have to focus on consequential harms lawrence and and casey both have this phrase about the majority shouldn't impose its moral code suggesting you have to look for kind of third party harms. And a part of me kind of resists that, because I do believe in, in virtues that aren't necessarily consequential. But, um, but perhaps in analyzing the legality of discriminatory laws, we, we really need to require that there be demonstrable uh, harms before people can be uh, denied, denied rights. Um, and one of the distinctions that people often make between Sexual orientation is race is, is saying well, race is about status, and uh, sexual orientation is about conduct. First of all, as loving reflects, we don't just prohibit um, status-based discrimination. The lovings had to engage in the conduct of marriage uh, before they broke the law, uh, and uh, and and we consider that um, wrong. But um, but also sexual orientation, uh, even to the extent it's about conduct, you know, hate the sinner or. Hate the sin, love the sinner, um, well if you're going to say what makes our discrimination different is we're focusing on the external conduct, not the internal status, well then if that's your basis then you should have to show why that conduct is harmful. You, you can't, it doesn't seem um, in a sense fair in the sense of, of being able to have a discussion about it to say you're focusing on something external and, and conduct based. And, and that somehow makes a difference, but then retreat to religious beliefs for the reason then it should be punished. Uh, show how that external conduct affects others in harmful ways, and if you can't, then that shouldn't be the basis of legal discrimination. It can still be a sin in your faith, but then it should be between you know God and that person, not something that the law should regulate.
0: So while we're speaking for other people, um, I will commend my colleague Russell Robinson's work to you. He's thought a lot about the um, interaction between the arguments for racial equality and their translation to um, the marriage equality movement. Um, And he's quite critical of it, and so it might be helpful to think about that. Um, But to sort of marry your question to Deborah's charge for the panel, to sort of think about how courts might facilitate some of this social change, I will just note um, God and religion play a role rhetorically in both Obergefell and in Loving, and in Loving, the court speaks of the Virginia Supreme Court's um, declaration that the Almighty God made the races red, brown, Malay, black, and they placed, and placed them on different continents so as there could be no race mixing. And that's put in there to underscore that this logic, this religious logic, is specious. Right? I mean, it's called out, I mean, you're supposed to sort of like, that's crazy. Um, In Obergefell, Justice Kennedy has a quite, um, I think, sensitive and really um, meditative reflection on what it means to be a religious dissenter in a social milieu that is rapidly changing and not in ways that are consistent with your faith. And seems, again, I think, to credit um, the idea of religious objection, which may give way to moral objection and in fact lays the table, I think, for what you see emerging in Masterpiece Cake Shop. So for all of Loving's failings, and I think people have pointed out what the decision might have done better, one thing I think it does do quite well is to sort of put the religious arguments, to the extent that some of them are specious, on blast. And Obergefell, I think, instead um, really is sort of crediting a kind of um, pluralistic vision where religious objectors and people advancing rights claims can coexist and we're going to find out if that's true or not. Other questions?
2: Yes.
1: Um, in a way, Angela, your presentation was one of the privileged rationality that the failure in Washington v. Davis was a, like, a fit between the test and the skills that are required mm. mm-hmm. mm-hmm. capacity Mm-hmm. And Kim, you you privilege, or at least by holding Brown up next to Obergefell, we we see a jurisprudence of affect uh, in Brown. And it's the uh, um, negative self-image that kids of color get from segregation, um, self-hatred, and problems of self-esteem. And a said a jurisprudence of humiliation that I think is the persuaded just. More than that, than point out a failure of rationality or a, 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 a politics of affect in thinking about how to dismantle structural inequality, whether it's heterosexual supremacy or white supremacy. Um, you know, I've asked it to do more, and I think you guys do
3: too. But is it realistic? To, uh, oh, is it realistic? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, is it realistic? And at this moment, um, I would say no. I mean, I think for some of the some of the structural reasons, right? That who's who's making the decisions, what experiences those people have, how do they understand subordination? Um, uh, and uh, I think one of the one of the major problems, right? I think is is that I think that. Um, Generally, many of the justices have blind spots to certain things, or maybe not even blind spots, but don't want to don't want to acknowledge, don't want to acknowledge the harmful the harms to certain groups of people. So, for example, Kim talks about he wants Obergefell to be more like um, loving, right? So I, I would love for a to have been more like loving and I think some of that's related to interest, interest convergence right you're never going to get a really really um, uh, strong opinion when you're talking about interest convergence is the reason, reason why the opinions coming out but um, but I think some of it is too is the court's making a choice based on who they are about who they want to discard or a, I'm not discard, but I guess discard is in some way a or word, or, or offend. And they're making, and when he makes a choice um, to not offend his colleagues on the bench, who, who assert a religious objection to same-sex marriage. And, and so doing makes a, a choice right? to, um, I think, it's my view, demean and to exclude uh, um, a, a group of people. Um, I wish I could say, I, th- I mean, I think that the-, I think the law has a lot of potential. It could do it, but I don't think that we're in a moment where that will happen, and I'm not sure that we'll get to that moment. If I think about the, the-, the federal courts, are not getting any more diverse. Um, they're certainly not getting any more progressive. It's getting much harder to get actual progressives on, on the court. Um, uh, so I'm not feeling optimistic. I wish I could say that I was, but I'm not at this moment.
2: So let me just say one thing in closing, and then we'll thank our fabulous panel. So it seems that the two questions that people have been wrestling with within the kind of general charge about uh, social and legal transformation that our panel had were how accommodationist to be, to speak to where people are or where we want them to be, to be accommodationist with regard to religious objections or not, as well as other uh, possibilities within that. Also, secondly, how to speak so as to be heard. I liked Kim's uh, metaphor of with a fist or with an outstretched hand. Um, one question, though, in the Loving versus Obergefell comparison, should um, should Obergefell, excuse me, had been more like Loving or more like Brown, that um, didn't come up and that I imagine with the third panel might come up is the liberty versus equality grounding. So um, both Obergefell and Loving have both liberty and equality in them as groundings, and some would say they are sort of fusion cases, especially Obergefell mixing together the liberty and the equality grounding. Um, Is that a good dimension and you could say maybe you might say loving is though it's got both it's more on the equality side Obergefell more on the liberty side Um, Brown obviously completely on the equality side so what do we think of that what is the proper grounding do we like the fusion approach or do we think these are fundamentally questions of equality or fundamentally questions of liberty? And I imagine those kinds of questions might come up in the third panel. So please join with me in in thanking this panel.